Greetings and salutations. This is Michael Govier from the First Day Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 208, Batman Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers. This, of course, is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, this week, we're going to be combining Derek's favorite movie genre, comic book movies, with my favorite genre, which is Gen X movies, uh, with our talk about Tim Burton's Batman from 1989. But before we get into that, any pop culture that you were able to partake in over the past week, Derek? Absolutely. Uh, nice. So I had a chance to uh, take in a few movies and in, I even got to take in a documentary, which okay. I, I have not prepped you on. So I think you'll actually have a lot to say about it as well. Great. All right. Uh, we'll start off. I went back into my Wayback Machine mm-hmm. and uh, I went back to, I believe it was 1980, Ooh. maybe 1979. And I watched for the very first time the movie Fame. Oh, that's 1980. 1980. It is 1980. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever seen Fame? Yes, I have. Yep. I, for some reason, good. I had it. I had it in my mind that it was a musical, like a full on, like all no. the dialogue is singing musical, no. which no. is part of the reason I never watched it. Because it's like I'm not a big musical fan, but no. uh, you know, I, I, there are some that I really, really enjoy. But I just always assumed Fame was a musical, so I never really no. got. I never There's really gave it a chance. Musical number where they all kind of start playing music, sort of organically, and they play them, and they all start dancing and stuff. But it's not a musical per se, like where people break into song and you know do that. No, not at all. It's about uh, the performing that, arts. Yeah, but but that was my my preconception mm-hmm. that that's what it was. So I, I never gave it a chance. It and wasn't then, like Xanadu, which came out in the same year. If you say so, never saw Xanadu. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I watched it and, and I really liked it. I thought it was really good. I mean, there were certainly some things that felt dated, but that's that's expected with a movie that's, you know, from 1980. But no, I enjoyed it a lot and uh, I was a little disappointed. It took me this long to find it. So uh, if you have never seen the movie Fame, it was pretty good. I would say check it out. I think it surprised a lot of people too because Irene Cara at the time, you know, she did that song and you know she did she did a couple other songs, and she does a nude scene in that movie. And yeah, I think it threw some people off. It's it was it, it was it's a little bit more about kind of like what it's like to to for these students that go to school to go to like Juilliard, and they want to be famous, but yeah. what you find out is that. They start waiting tables and having to do like shady things and stuff like that. And fame is an elusive thing, you know, even if you're multi-talented. So, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Um, So then I I did uh, two other movies a lot newer. Uh, One is um, from 2013. Mm -hmm. It's a movie called Fruitvale Station. Have you ever heard of it? Never even heard of it. So, All right, so it shocker. is. I know. It stars uh, Michael B. Jordan and okay. is uh, was written and directed by Ryan Coogler. Okay, uh, those two have since collaborated on uh, Creed in 2015 and Black Panther in 2018. But uh, Fruitvale Station was 
uh, critically acclaimed when it came out. A lot of people thought that Michael B. Jordan might have deserved an Oscar nomination for his performance. And watching it this week, I, I can totally agree with that assessment. He was fantastic. I think that because he was young and relatively unknown uh, and, the, and the nature of the, the subject of the movie, I think that obviously um, worked against him and against the studio, uh, which is probably a big reason why he wasn't nominated. But man, it it's a powerful film and uh, it's based on a true story and it, the performances were great and it, it's um, it sends a powerful message. It was it was a fantastic film and I, I'd actually had it on my watch list for a mm. while and I just had never had an opportunity and then I saw it was coming up on, uh, on one of my channels here so I set it for an overnight record and I, I watched it back a couple of days ago and yeah, it was it was quite good. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it if, you, if you're not familiar with it. I think uh, just... T take my word for it. If you if you trust the talent of these uh, of these creative people that are part of the process, just give it a watch. I, I think you'll really like it. Um, and then the last one, uh, the last regular movie I watched was the new Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters oh. Afterlife. Oh, what's, what, what was that like? So Ugh. they basically it's a sequel to 1984 Ghostbusters Part One. They really do not acknowledge. The, anything from Ghostbusters Part Two mm -hmm. or any anything from the Ghostbusters reboot that came out a few years ago. The idea that, that's is fine. That's fine to that's ignore fine. those two things. They both sucked. So yeah. So it's uh, and it takes place like now, like 20, 2020, I think is when it was shot. So it's supposed to take place in twenty twenty, and it's supposed to be all those years later. Like if the first one took place in nineteen eighty four. This one took place in twenty twenty, and they address what's happened in all that time. And I thought it was a really clever and creative way to revisit this idea in a way that um, that still honors what the first one was, but gives you some something new to like about where it went. And again, I, I'm deliberately being vague because I think the less you know going into it, the better. But I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I had read some of the early reviews um, when it first came out and there was a lot of, well, you know, it's okay. It's not bad. It does some things right. And something I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, mm -hmm. I had, I actually ended up having to pay to rent it, to watch it at home. Um, and I feel, uh, you know, it was definitely worth a few bucks. I had to drop down and, and I'm glad I had a chance to watch it. And it, it is definitely one that I will probably watch again when it comes to home, home streaming services, whether it's on Netflix or HBO or whatever. But, uh, no, I, I actually liked it a lot. Um, and and I know you're not a big fan of the whole reboots and recycles. And I am not reimagining. But I think you have a fond enough place in your heart for the first one that I, do. I think if you give this one a chance, you might enjoy it too. Mm, we'll see. I'm not saying you will, but uh, I'm mm -hmm. saying you might. Maybe. So. Okay. And then my uh, my fourth and final one was a documentary. For forty days and forty nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentary. Documentary. Our producer Sloth, right there with the drops. I got an email this week and someone's like, why do you call your producer Sloth? Because we chain him in the basement and make him do all the editing of the show and just feed him Baby Ruth chocolate bars. So, just kidding. He's, he's a good guy. Fair enough. What was the documentary? Um, so, so let me ask you, uh, mm -hmm. if I told you, uh, if I asked you to, uh, to name a rock and roll band, a trio from Toronto, but you can't pick Rush... What would your next guest be? Triumph. Yes. Yes. The documentary is called Triumph Rock and Roll Machine. Yes. And it's oh, a man. it's so, a documentary so cool. about Triumph. It oh, was man. fantastic. It yes. was so good. I I didn't 
I, like honestly, I didn't really know much about the. I mentioned Triumph so many times in this podcast. Oh, I, I loved know. Triumph when I was a, when I was a teenager, and all my friends were like, "Oh man, like they they suck." Like, what's Triumph all about? I'm like, Triumph rocks, man. They are so good. First concert I ever saw was Helix opening up for Triumph in 1984 with their Thunder Seven tour. Triumph is amazing. One yeah. of the best guitar players that ever lived, Rick Emmett. He was the inspiration for me to pick up a guitar when I was a teenager. Nice. Well, it was, it, I mean, the first part of it watches like a, a biography because, you know, they, they, it's like this is this is who makes up the band and mm-hmm. this is how they got together and this is how they broke into the music industry and these are their ups and downs. And like for me, uh, you know, they, they broke into the music scene in the in the early mid-70s. It's like I wasn't born until the mid-70s, so I didn't really come to the band until the mid-80s, which was sort of towards the end of their 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 heyday. And obviously I've, I've since gone back and like I know about like their greatest the greatest hits of the band but I, I didn't really know a lot about mm. the band other than they're Canadian they're from Toronto and they're a three-piece rock band um, and and obviously they have a pretty deep library and a lot oh, of yeah. the songs they would come up and I'm like oh my god yeah I forgot they do this mm-hmm. uh, but no it was really really good I really and then they just kind of ended they just stopped it was like what happened like, like like yeah oh man and so they talk about that and then but the whole the the documentary the framework of the documentary is in 2019 they put together a fan event where they basically reached out to 200 of their most loyal and diehard super fans people that have been following the bands for years that have fan sites and all that stuff that have reached out to them that they have really funny with. enough they never contacted invitation. me for that so well it was invitation only and um so the documentary is framed around the 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 setup required to put on this event and then at the end of the documentary they they show the last 10 minutes are like the highlights of this little event where they actually performed live for the first time in years and of course none of the fans knew that the band was going to perform so it was you know people lost their mind these are their oh. you know their most loyal super fans but yeah no it was really really good i mean even if you don't really know the band, even if you're not that familiar with their music, it's it's just it's a good story. It's a, a lot of uh, a lot of fortune and success that came from a lot of hard work and and like so many like we already talked about, fame is so elusive. Sometimes it's just the right people, the right place, the right time, the right idea, the right sound, and and so many things just came together for them in the right way. But so much of it was because they put in the the love, sweat, and tears to 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 be in the right place at the right time and to demand things that they felt they deserved that maybe others wouldn't have demanded in those same circumstances that opened up doors for them. So no, it was, it was really, really good. I just finished watching it a few hours before we recorded today. And it's funny enough when I saw it in the lineup a few days ago, cause I think it just dropped on HBO this weekend and I'm flicking through to go, oh, well, what's coming up in the next few days. And I see it and I was like, Oh, I better record that. So I'm setting up my recorder. And while I'm doing that, my phone is next to me and I hear it dinging this is like probably 11 o'clock at night i hear it dinging oh somebody's texting me at 11 who the hell's texting me at 11 so i set up the recording i pick up my phone and it's my brother and he goes hey i just watched a documentary on triumph you should set up your recorder to watch <laughs> so it cool. and i was like yeah i'm doing it literally right now so yeah no it was good my wife watched it she loved it my brother watched it he loved it i, I watched it today it was great so if you can find it uh just drop triumph rock and roll machine it's fantastic they should have been bigger than they were first of all i think that band should have been as big yeah. as zeppelin they were so good but they they would play like when they were first starting out they would play like high schools and stuff and they would put on yeah. these like huge shows with like pyrotechnics and stuff and like and then they just like blow people away They're like you're doing this in our high school in our gymnasium what the hell is this and they just like always went big and over the top and like oh god they were so good oh man they were amazing and they talk all about that in the documentary oh i gotta watch so. you're gonna have to tell me when we get off you have to, where, where where can you find it, is it on the i got it here or? on uh, on crave hbo 
Okay. Okay. HBO. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna. I gotta watch that. That's right up my alley. Now, you know me, Derek. I I don't always have all that much free time to partake in pop culture. You know, I got two young kids and all. Let me tell you. In addition to going back and watching Batman for for the pod this week, I had the chance to watch two other movies. One was old and one was new. You should be very wow. proud of me. So the old one first. So Heaven Can Wait from 1970. Oh, I saw that in the lineup. I've never seen it. I uh, I saw it in the lineup and I thought I should record that. And I unfortunately, I did not. You, How is it? Oh, you never need seen to watch it. So I, I'd seen the movie before, like years ago. I haven't seen the movie in you know probably 40 years. Oh my God. It was on and, and so on. And we were doing something the one night. And so I, I said to my I want to watch this movie. It's coming on. So I put it on. It's with Warren Beatty. It's directed by Warren Beatty. It was written by Warren Beatty and Elaine May. She co-wrote it too. My God, is it ever a good movie? I forgot how good this is. And the thing is with this movie, it shouldn't really be this good. Because it's about this guy that dies. And then there's like a mistake in heaven. And the angels in heaven have to put him back into another man's body back on earth. Like it sounds like it's kind of contrived and bizarre, right? But man, it was amazing. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture when it came out. So even the critics liked it. So oh, I would recommend it highly. Heaven Kuwait from 1978. And the newer movie, well, you know my usual MO, you know? It, it held true here because I liked the old movie that I watched, Heaven Can Wait. And I hated the new movie. <laughs> Go figure. I know it's weird. So my wife loves Lady Gaga. So she dragged me out to the movie theater to go see The House of Gucci. Oh, boy. Okay. It was directed by Ridley Scott, one of your yep. fave directors, bud. Oh, it, yeah. It's, it's basically about these rich, ugly people and what they do for money and power and influence. But mostly it's just a, a movie about a bunch of ugly people. And not that ugly people can't be interesting. I'm, you know, It's just that the movie was just bad all around. So along with Lady Gaga, Adam Driver was in it. And so was Al Pacino. And Jared Leto was basically unrecognizable. I, I I wouldn't have known even it was him. It's my wife. She at one point she's like, "Oh, that's Jared Leto." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I, I wasn't paying attention during the opening credits, and um, and and I didn't even know Ridley Scott directed it until the end. I think Ridley Scott is a little bit overrated as a director. I mean, Alien was good. We watched Gladiator recently, and that was pretty good. But other than that, I don't know, man. This movie was not good. It was not good. I did not like it at all. Way too long, too. Oh, and one other thing. I wanted to let you know. I was mentioning uh, Sloth, our producer, so it came to mind. He informed me this week that, Derek, we recently ranked as high as num- the number five entertainment podcast in Ghana, the African nation. Well, that's good. I know. Top I, five I feel, good. I feel like Spinal Tap when they found out that they were on the charts in Japan. Maybe we should go on a publicity tour of Ghana. I don't know. So, anyway. Here's your dad joke of the week. Felt it was only appropriate if we were doing Batman this week that I should do like a Batman-related dad joke for you. So, Derek, why is Two-Face one of the better comic book villains? Hmm. I don't know. I've never heard this before. I have no idea. Because he's not half bad. That's pretty good and very thematically appropriate. Good job. No, thanks. 
Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. <laughs> if there's a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Smokey and the band oh. shirt for you. <laughs> so, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad. Boof from Teen Wolf. Hot as a pistol. Wow. I know. That's pretty amazing. I'm a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd. It's a shock that you never got more girls in high school. <laughs> Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. I don't know. That's a lot to unpack, Chris. I'll give you a second here. <laughs> okay, so this week it was my turn to nominate a movie for us to watch and review. And because we held our pop culture fantasy draft for 1989 recently, my movie had to be from that year. So I went with Tim Burton's Batman. Obviously, it stars Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, and Kim Basinger. Uh, the film had a budget of $40 million, and it made 10 times that much at the worldwide box office. Now, Derek, you're more of the comic book guy than I am. Like, you like comic book movies. You know, you're always trying to get me to watch these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And you are probably one of the single biggest Batman fans that I have ever met in my entire life. So I think I'm going to be getting you to do some of the heavy lifting you know, around here this week. So that's for sure. Sure. Um, that's but, fair. But before we get into the movie, I, I, I'm curious as to your take on where it ranks with other comic book movies. Because for me, and you know, I could be totally out in left field here, and I probably am. I think there's three, what I would call, quote unquote, important comic book movies that have been made. Number one, Superman from 1978, because it was the first real comic book movie that came out. And it showed that a movie based on comic books could appeal to mainstream audiences. So there's that. Number two, I think this movie. Um, Batman because it showed that a comic book movie could be like dark you know and gothic and stylistic and then the third one I would say is Iron Man from 2008 it was one that you had me watch uh, here on the podcast and it really that movie launched the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe which has basically become the biggest movie phenomenon of all time so so that's my take on where this movie ranks with sort of the all-time comic book movies and which ones were important. But I'm curious to get your take here, Derek. So before we get do like a... We're going to do a deep dive on this movie. So just as an overview, what, what's your short version on your take on this movie? It's been a long time. So I, I agree with what you just said. I think that if the one, two, three that you've got in in order of importance based on chronology, I, I definitely agree. I, I think you nailed it right on the head. Wow. It's like okay. Superman 1, open the door... Batman, this one, uh, opened the door a little more, and then Iron Man blew the hinges right off the door, and that's that's it. And and there were obviously things that came in between Superman and Batman, and there were things that came in between Batman and Iron Man, uh, and they all have their place, some good, some bad, some very bad. Um, but I definitely think those are sort of the three top blips, and then what happens after Iron Man is just, you know, a skyrocket to yeah. the top. Again, there have been some some stumbles along the way, but uh, considering the the financial revenues that have been generated from the Marvel Cinematic Universe since the launch of Iron Man. It's there's there's no looking back. There's no going back. It, it changed entertainment, changed pop culture. Yeah. Um, but as far as this movie, I mean, I, I, I like it. I liked it when it came out. Uh, like you had mentioned prior to this one coming out, the only other serious comic book movie we had was Superman with Christopher Reeves. And by Superman three, they started getting really goofy. And I don't, think I ever did see all of Superman 4. It was just so bad never I had to turn it, it off. Yep, never seen But, that. I mean, Superman 1 and 2 were good. Superman 2 was good. I love that Yeah, one. It was better back, than the first one, I thought. And, yeah, and, and what I didn't know until years, years later was they shot Superman 1 and 2 at the same time. And so that's partly why they feel so seamless to, 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 
to work together because that was it was envisioned as one large two-part story so um as a young person i i didn't really i i had no idea of that but when batman came out this was now you have the material being taken i don't want to say super seriously but a lot more seriously than some of the other things that have been thrown at audiences since superman's arrival in uh, the late 70s and early 80s and and up until then people's image of batman for for most people was the adam west tv show as, as we sort of mentioned at the end of the last yeah. show and so when you said to people batman they were like no 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 batman it's like sock yeah. pow you know all that exactly. campy and, stuff and the batman that was put out for tv in the 60s was designed and intended for a certain audience right it was supposed to be very family friendly it was supposed to appeal to young kids it was all about um prime winning over primetime audiences in middle america and selling merchandise maybe the selling merchandise probably a little less so but that was certainly a nice fringe benefit and at the time the batman comic book was not doing well and the tv show really helped elevate the the batman comic book back into popularity um so there's definitely a, a place in in pop culture and in batman history for the adam west show but there wasn't a lot between then and 1989's Batman. Well, there was nothing, right? Nothing. Like you didn't have you didn't have any movies, and the comic books actually started to take a, a slightly different direction uh, to try and appeal to a slightly different audience. And they had you know various levels of success. And then in the late 80s, prior to this movie coming out, um, a couple of years earlier, you had uh, Frank Miller uh, come out with two iconic and possibly two of the most important Batman stories ever. He did what what's called Batman Year One, where he took a four issues of the Batman comic and, and retold and reimagined the Batman origin story in a way that sort of upgraded it for an audience in the 1980s, because originally Batman came out in Detective Comics 27 in May 1939. Well, What's what's going to fly in 1939 is not necessarily going to appeal to an audience in the 1980s. So like so many of our, our icons and, and characters, you have to keep updating them with the times. And so Miller was given the green light to give this give the Batman a reimagining, staying as close to the original story as possible, but but giving it a more gritty, darker um, you know, sort of film noir style in the comic book. And it was a tremendous success. And then within a year of that, he also was given permission to imagine the end of the Batman storyline. So he had the origin of Batman and the end of Batman. And with the end of Batman, he had a story called The Dark Knight Returns. And the idea with this one was, what happens after Batman retires? So Batman has his run for 10 or 15 years. He does everything he's going to do. And then he hangs up the cape because he's getting old. And then 10 or 15 years pass, 20 years pass, and the world's gone to hell because superheroes have gotten old and retired. And this series examines, well, what would have to happen for old man Bruce Wayne to come out of retirement and come back to be a hero, even though he's 60 or older? And and the idea was that this was like Batman's last stand. He's going to come out of retirement and make a difference and make a statement. And at the end of the series, he's going to die. And that was it. So Miller basically was given the green light by DC Comics. We're going to tell Batman origin. We're going to tell the Batman f finale. And there it is. And it blew people's minds like it was a totally different take on what batman stories could be and this this movie this 1989 batman drew heavily from the influences of both of those stories um and so that's largely why this movie partly why this movie got a green light because the popularity of batman was going through the roof based on these two 
seminal pieces that had come out in the late 1980s. There was like this Batman mania and they're like, well, let's cash in on, let's make a movie. And the idea that we don't want to go back to what we had in the TV show. We don't want it to be campy and family friendly. We want to borrow from this ideas that Miller's put out that Batman should be told in the style of like a 1920s, 1930s film noir. It should be dark. It should be stylistic. And and that's what this movie really tries to emulate. And there's a lot of things to point to to reflect that. And we'll talk about it a little more as we go through. But anyway, that's that's sort of my long winded first take of this. The the challenge really is when you go back and look at some of these these old Gen X movies is you need to take into consideration, you know, the time when they came out. And like you said, when, when this movie came out, people's frame of reference was the, the, the TV show. <laughs> from the 50s and the thing you got to remember when this movie came out in 89 it was an absolute phenomenon like the bat logo was everywhere it was a, this big success at the box office and it just it had people talking now i did not see this movie in theaters when it came out originally i i, I the first time i saw it was on vhs and this is back when it took years for a movie to come out on videotape. But Batman was released on VHS just like six months after it came out in the movie theaters and it was priced to sell. It was only like 25 bucks to buy back. It was really, really rare back then because most movies, when they came out on VHS back then were really expensive. They, they were only available to rent at places like Blockbuster, you know, and you, you know that. But I really liked this movie a lot back in the day. I remember that. And like I said, I haven't seen it in, you know, 30 years. And the interesting thing was, like, I liked it, but I didn't love it when I watched it this time. I don't think it was as good as I remembered it. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's it's a, a little bit of style over substance, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's, and, and I think your frame of reference is important. So even though I know you're not really into the new superhero genres, I've had you watch a few of them for this podcast, and I know your kids have watched a few, so you've seen it here and there. And I think that the expectation of today's viewing audience is is such that if they were to go back and see this for the first time now, there would be a tremendous amount of disappointment because you forget that what you see today is standing on the shoulder of giants who came before them. And this is one of those giants that came before. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to you're not going to be perfect right out of the gate. Like you watch the Chris Marie Superman. There's a lot to like. But there's a lot of stuff that just kind of looks goofy. Like his costume, you could see the sweaty armpits through half the movie. And it's like, that's just the reality of the way they shot movies then. Today, it would all be digital everything. And then with this movie, you know, there's there are some things that are, are done in a deliberately stylistic way. But there's still some goofiness here. And there's this movie to me sort of straddles that line between realism and fantasy of they tried to go down the road of, well, what if Batman was real? what what might that be like but there's still a lot of goofy going on as well where things are just like well that's hard to hard to swallow and even if you compare it to uh batman begins with christian bale like that is really the next jump from this movie like in that one is ultra realistic like they would you know they really took painstaking efforts in the batman begins reboot to say how do we make this character grounded in a way that audiences could actually believe based on what they know about how the world works today that this could happen in 1989 there was a lot there was no real effort to to uh to make that connection it was this is a this movie's a fantasy this movie is a uh, a film noir this is a this is a superhero movie just go and enjoy it you know and and, and i think that Looking back on it today, from, with today's lens, you're like, eh, it was okay. But to your point, 
I probably saw this in the theater four or five times. When it came out on video, I probably watched the video two, three times a week for the first few weeks. I couldn't get enough of it, largely because as a Batman fan, I was just thrilled with being able to see a live action sure. movie that featured the characters I loved. Now, as as I got a little older and as more comic book movies came out, I started to realize, like, you know, this was good for what it was at the time. But as improvements were made, you sort of look back at it a little more critically and go, eh. like, one of the things that uh, like I've read a lot of trivia about this over the years, the Batman outfit that he wears, like it's it's like this rubber outfit and the mask. He can't turn his head left to right in the, when he's got the cowl. No, because it's like, attached it's so, to his shoulder. It's yeah. so big and bulky and heavy and attached to the cape. And once you realize that and you go back and watch it and you watch his movements, like there's a lot of scenes where it's like normally an actor would just turn their head a little bit, but he has to like shift his whole body mm -hmm. to be able to see what's going on. And it, it looks very exaggerated and it's those little details that right. in the moment, Hey, this costume is stylistic and it works and it does what we need it to do. But it's those kinds of little details that upon, you know, multiple viewings, you start to catch some of them and you're like, Oh, that's, that's a little bit silly. We usually like to dive into the cast of our movies and and I definitely think we need to do it here because this movie was really controversial when it was in production because of the casting. I think a lot of comic book fans at the time were worried that uh you know just like you said like their frame of reference was the TV show. So I think a lot of people when they they announced, you know, hey Batman's coming out in this movie, oh people thought it would maybe just like the TV show, right? And the studio and and Tim Burton for that matter tried to assure fans, you know, that you know no, 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 this is, this is going to be dark and edgy, right? And then all of a sudden they announce Michael Keaton yeah. is going to be Beetlejuice in the Beetlejuice is role. going to be Batman, and the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure is going to be directing Exactly. It. People think of, like, Michael Keaton at the time, they think of Mr. Mom and Night Shift and Johnny Dangerously. And, you know, I think they thought for sure this was just going to go for humor, you know, and be campy like the TV show. But in reality, you know, you, you should look at Keaton's movies like Clean and Sober and Beetlejuice to see, like, he was actually a pretty edgy actor when it, when, when it was called for, you know. Mm -hmm. But that being said, as I went back and watched this, I felt that his performance isn't really dark and brooding. It's kind of boring. You know, what do you think? Yeah, I, I so, I mean, I... In the moment, I was like, again, I was much younger. I was just, uh, you know, 13, 14 when this came out. Sure, so sure. I was certainly willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I was like, well, let's see what we got here. And it, it, again, in the moment, I thought he did a great job. I still, I think he did a great job for what he had to work with. And I have no objections to him being cast as Batman. What I did have some issues with, and I was really noticed this when I came to watch it just this last week was, because I hadn't seen it in probably six months or a year, was... He the way that he portrayed Bruce Wayne was almost like he was a little flighty and goofy and and absent minded and not really there. And I don't know if that was direction from from Burton to say, like, well, you know, he's supposed to be this really smart guy. But in order to throw people off the, the, the idea that he might actually be Batman, you have to play him as sort of a bumbling idiot. Uh, I, I, I like that's not usually how. Bruce Wayne is portrayed in the meat in the comics anyway uh, and in the newer movies it's like he's supposed to run this vast empire of you know the Wayne tech or the Wayne enterprise or whatever and it's this he's like the the CEO and owner of this business and the idea is that he's he's bright enough and sharp enough to to pick up on these things now obviously he's going to downplay this this keen observation and you know he's supposed to be the world's greatest detective so he's going to downplay some of the things he might pick up on 
But I thought even in the scenes where there's nobody around, Michael Keaton's portrayal of Bruce Wayne just sort of had him like, oh, well, derp, derp, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it just, I don't know. I, I didn't get the sense that he was as sharp as I wanted the character to be. And and that sort of bothered me a little bit. And I don't know if that was a choice, if it was a choice by the director, if it was something that was in the script, if it was a choice by Keaton. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't care for it. Jack Nicholson, we got to talk about because he was a, another point of some controversy not because of his performance, but because of the billing. So Jack Nicholson actually received top billing on this movie, which was a thing back then. Yeah. You know, uh, like if you think about it, his name was first on the poster. It was Nicholson yes. Keaton, yep. you know, even though he plays the villain rather than the quote unquote lead role. Right. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm going to lean on you a little bit, you know, to do some of the heavy lifting this week, Derek. So you're the big Batman fan. You've seen all the other iterations of these characters. Yep. And it always seems that the Joker is like a big deal. You know, I mean, you you had Heath Ledger won won an Oscar for his portrayal in uh, The Dark Knight, which Yancey had me watch back on like season one or two of this podcast. I actually really liked that movie. I thought it was pretty good. It's great. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, I don't know if I liked it better than this one. I don't know. Anyway, um... But a couple of things. So I want to start with the Joker. So in your in your opinion, Derek, how does Nicholson stack up with the other actors that have played this role? He was great. I think uh, I think he did a great job. I think that he came off as very menacing. Um, uh, like there's the scene, the, the, the scene that really struck me. And again, very stylistic, but deliberately so is when he comes back to the office where Jack Palance is and he confronts him and he kills him and he sort of steps out of the shadows and you see him with the white yep. face for the first time Takes and the off grin. The hat. Yep. And then, yeah, and um, and then he sits at the desk and he looks at the newspaper and there's the blood all over it. And then the scene, like at first you're looking over his shoulder at the newspaper and then it cuts to the other, like basically now you're looking at him face to face. That the way that scene is shot, where he's reading the paper and then he sort of slams the paper down and he says like, "Oh, winged freeth terrorizes Gotham. Wait till they get what is it? Wait till they get a load of me." Yeah. Just that shot, you're like, "Oh my god!" Like this guy is is menacing in this scene. Like you really get a sense that this is a dangerous person. And through the course of the movie, you really get the sense that, you know, since his transformation into the Joker, like he's clearly becoming a little unhinged and and doing, you know, Looney Tooney things. Again, I don't necessarily looking back on it. I think there were some choice, some some. I don't want to say poor choices, but less than great choices made about how to portray how how he was portraying the Joker. But I think there's a lot to like about his performance here. Couple things: Caesar Romero played the Joker in the uh, the old TV show, and one thing is he had a mustache. Yes, and he refused to shave it off for yes. the part. So if you look closely, you can see they just put white makeup over top of his mustache. His mustache is still there. Um, but some and of the other actors... Ch- as a kid, I never, I don't, ever noticed that. It wasn't until, again, years later, yeah. I read that in the trivia and I went, you're kidding me. And I went back and looked at it. I'm like, oh and my God. There's the if mustache. If you know it's there, you yeah. can see it. But if you're if you're caught up in the in the spectacle of the, the 60s TV yeah. show, you're not, you're not paying attention to the detail. And again, those weren't shot in HD, so you could no. get away with a lot of stuff exactly. like that. Now, Heath Ledger won Best Supporting Actor uh, in 2008 for playing the Joker. And Joaquin Phoenix uh, also won an Oscar for Best Actor uh, for playing him in 2019. 
So my question to you is this. Do you think Jack Nicholson should have at least been nominated for his part? No. No, I think I think the way the character was played and portrayed and written and directed in this film mm-hmm. was very much well I'll say campy for lack of a better word. Although at the time it probably wasn't seen as campy, but I think there was it was a lot of um I think there was a lot of over the top. And we'll say again who am I to judge? I'm not an actor, but I, I always felt that Nicholson was really overacting in a lot of those mm-hmm. scenes, almost to the point where he was probably just having fun with it, where they're like, yeah, do this. And he's like, I'm just going to turn this up to 11 because I can. And there were some scenes where I think he was great, but I think there's too many scenes where he just dials it up too much where you're like, no, you you, you wouldn't normally nominate someone for an award for that kind of a performance because it's, it's the whole film you're, you're awarding them for, not just two mm-hmm. or three key scenes. The, the nominees for for actor that year, best actor, Daniel Day-Lewis for My Left Foot, Kenneth Branagh for Henry V, Tom Cruise, born on the 4th of July, Morgan Freeman, Driving Miss Daisy, and Robin Williams, Dead Poets Society. If you considered yeah. him... So what's that? I, I wouldn't have put him in there yeah. above any of those. Well, and if you consider him to be a supporting actor, he would have been up against Denzel Washington for Glory, who won, Danny Aiello for Do the Right Thing, Dan Aykroyd for Driving Miss Daisy, Marlon Brando for A Dry White Season, and Martin Lando for Crimes and Misdemeanors. I, I think he probably could have edged out um, Driving Miss Daisy there, or Dan Aykroyd. But, mm, I don't but, know about him. I, maybe Marlon Brando in that or, one, I think. But yeah, 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 but I think, again, I think, that, I think he was in the movie way too much to be considered supporting. Especially since he's got top billing. How do yeah, you give exactly. him top billing in the movie and then call him a supporting exactly. performance? No. I, no. I think, I, yeah. I, I mentioned Joaquin Phoenix because he he played the part in 2019 in The Joker, the movie The Joker. I never saw that movie. But um, I did mention this when, when we when we did the, the Gladiator podcast. I just think Joaquin Phoenix is a weirdo. He looks like a crack addict who hasn't slept in a month. He just, he creeps me out, I mean, which may be a good thing for playing this part. But you obviously saw The Joker, I'm assuming. I reluctantly saw it because I had free passes and it got mm-hmm. nominated for an Oscar and I kind of felt I had to. I had no real desire to see it. I knew it wasn't How really was going to be. It was okay. I mean, it, it was what it was. I, I had a pretty good sense of what it was going to be like and it totally was that and I knew it was not something I was going to care for. As a performance, uh, his performance was was great in the sense that he plays this deranged delusional sociopath psychopath like someone who clearly has mental issues and and that performance certainly came across but I you know it, it only brushed upon the Joker character that is popular in the comic book mainstream I, I think I think they took a lot of liberties with slapping that Joker name on it like they could have given the movie another title and called it something else and I don't think it really I like I think the reason they called it Joker was because they knew they would get bums and seats from people who were Batman fans. Sure. I, I don't think it needed to be called Joker. He, you know, the only uh, quote, you know, the only sort of uh, connection to being the Joker that we're talking about here and now is that he eventually puts on clown makeup. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily equate, you know, crazy clown doesn't necessarily equate to Batman villain. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it is what it is. One thing I wanted to mention, the Joker's real name in the movie is Jack Napier. So I was doing some research for for this movie, coming into this podcast, 
And I found out that this is also the name of an adult movie star. Let me tell you, my research for this podcast the last few weeks is wreaking havoc with my internet search history. That's all I can say about that, Derek. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so sets, I want to talk about the sets in this movie because this is before the days of, of CGI. So yes, Gotham City is all like sets and paintings. And what did you think of the set design in this movie? So this is one of the things that I've always disliked about this movie is that it was so dark and that in my like my viewing, you know, my mind, it always felt like it was indoors, even when they were supposed to be outdoors, because it's clearly being shot in a lot in a warehouse on a back lot somewhere. And I know a lot of the movie takes place at night, um, as most Batman movies do, but it just had a real artificial feeling to me that even the scenes that were supposed to be outdoors didn't feel out. It reminded me of like the old Star Trek TV show where they're supposed to be on an, an alien planet. And it's clearly they're not even outside and they're on a soundstage. Yeah. yeah so that's thank you. That's the, the term I was looking for. Yeah. It just everything felt like it was on a soundstage. And I get that stylistically, they're trying to make it sort of that, you know, 30s, 40s film noir, a lot mm-hmm. of darkness, a lot of play with the lights and shadows. And I think some of that worked. But I I think that there was a little bit of um, of qual- quality compromise involved in order to get there. And for me, I just again, it was unlike anything we had seen before. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, I'm like, oh, hey, this is great. But it didn't take very long and, and it didn't take very many repeat viewings before I started thinking, I really like the way this film looks. You know, we were just talking about Warren Beatty before about doing mm-hmm. Heaven Can Wait. You could argue that. Dick Tracy would never been made if it wasn't for Batman. Did Dick Tracy come out after Batman? Yes. Okay. And I, I just, actually never saw it. Yeah, it, it just has this kind of feel to it, this thing. So um, I got a question for you. Um, how does this movie stack up against the comics themselves? I mean, I got I to gotta be perfectly honest. I mean, you're going to hate me for saying this, but I have never read a Batman comic in my entire life. I remember there was one time when I was, oh man, I was probably about six years old. My neighbors had a driveway party. It was one of those things where you go and like win prizes and stuff like that. And I won a comic book. I won a Batman comic, but I never read it. So, so I had a Batman comic book once, but, uh, you know, as you know, I was into like Richie Rich comics and like movie adaptations. So, so I don't know anything about it. So how does this, this movie stand up to the comic books? Just in general. it, it it definitely borrows from what was popular in the Batman comics at the time. A lot of the characters are represented uh, in a way that was very similar to how they were represented in the comic books. Uh, obviously, with a movie, you especially with a movie like this where you're kicking something off, it's all about the origin and explaining who these characters are. So the idea here was, um, you know, they had to give the Joker an origin story. And and I thought it was interesting. Of course, it's nothing like what's in the comics because the comics sort of, I think in the Dark Knight Returns, they do a much better job where just this guy shows up and he calls himself the Joker and he has no past and no one knows anything about him. And every time he tries to give you a story about like something from his past, the details change because it's clear that he's making it up every time. And that's how the Joker character in the comics has always worked. And that's part of why he's... Uh, had this longevity as a as a popular villain and an interesting character is every writer who picks up the story can do something a little different because you don't have to worry about being beholden to an established canon of a backstory. Whereas with a movie, especially this being the first of a new breed of of realistic or semi-realistic 
um, comic book movies, you need to really spoon feed the audience. You need to give them a sense of, well, this is why these characters do what they do. And these are who these characters are. And so you get this backstory of the, of the Joker. And I think it works. I think it works well in this movie, but it doesn't, uh, it, it was obviously completely fabricated for the film. And obviously at the end of this, they kill him, uh, which you're never going to kill your cash cow. And so the Joker has been around since Batman number one in the, you know, the 1930s. So, um, there, you know, he'd never going to get killed off permanently. Um, and then, but as far as some of the other characters, like Vicki Vale is a real character from the comics. Harvey Dent uh, is a real character in the comics who eventually goes on to become the the tragic villain Two-Face. And apparently that was part of the the proposal for casting Billy Dee Williams as a, you know, a recognizable actor is if, if they did make sequels and they did want to bring in the Two-Face character and they did want to bring Harvey Dent uh, into it, they, they had Billy Dee Williams... I, I believe they had him signed to potentially do a sequel to bring back this character. And then for whatever reason, they opted not to do that, which, you know, I think that was a missed opportunity. But I think it partly because at the time, nobody knew who, you know, Harvey Dent and Two-Face as a, as a character or a villain was, whereas people had at least heard of the Catwoman and the Penguin because they knew them from the old TV show. So there was more money to be made by putting those two in the next sequel. But so, yeah, there are definitely some points in this film that are absolutely true to the comic. Um but there's a fair amount of liberties that have been taken. You just mentioned the old TV show. Did you ever watch the old TV show? You, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. It, it was as on in syndication kid, was, back in the 70s. Yeah. I didn't really I, watch it as a kid. I didn't like it that much. I thought it was kind of weird. But have you seen episodes at least? Yeah. When I was younger, it used to be, they used to air it at lunchtime. And so I would come home from school at lunch and um, my mom would make us lunch. And my brother and I would get to watch Batman and Robin while we were eating our lunch every day. Um and so, like, I would have been really young. And then years later, when uh, it, it was available um, in syndication, I, I tried watching it again. And I obviously the things you watch as a little kid and enjoy and then you watch them 10 or 15 years later, they sometimes don't hold up like they're not as you don't remember them or the way you remember them is not the way they actually were. Like they they hold a different place in your memory. And so that was sort of what happened to me. I watched them when I was like in my early 20s and went, oh, some of these are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um but I've since, like, in the last five years, gone back and, and rewatched a few of those old episodes. And, and I'm starting to come back around and, and see, like, what they were really getting at with those shows and how they had to make adjustments and changes to um, to appeal to the audience they wanted and how they were trying to tell the stories. And, yeah, no, they're, they definitely – they hold up in a certain way for what they were. And they definitely hold a, hold a fondness in my heart. And, again, I'm, I'm going to be asking you lots of questions here. Gotham City. Yes, that that's supposed to be New York, right? Isn't it? Or like, Chicago? It's 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 supposed to be sort of a hybrid of both. They 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 never like that's the thing in DC Comics. They mm-hmm. they felt it was uh, more creative storytelling to just make up names of cities. Superman is in Metropolis. Yeah, Metropolis. Batman's in Gotham. That's, I thought we thought Chicago. that was New York too. I don't know. Yeah, I was. That was always what I felt was that. Uh, Metropolis was supposed to be New York and Gotham was supposed to be Chicago. Again, oh. I think those were where they were originally influenced from. Um, and then like and, and DC Comics always does, you know, they have Star City and, and, and other places where these their major characters are from uh, rather than saying I'm from New York, I'm from Chicago, I'm from Los Angeles. It's here we have these these places we've made up. And I think that gives them a lot more freedom in their storytelling. You know, it's not like, oh, well, if they're in New York, then there's the Statue of Liberty in New York. Whereas if they're in Metropolis, you yeah. can make whatever features you want that are that you need to tell the story you are telling. I always thought Gotham was New York. And and in fact, this when I was watching this movie, the actor that plays the mayor looks just like Ed Koch, yeah. who was the, the mayor of New York back in the 80s. 
Um, I don't think casting an Ed Koch lookalike was a was a was an accident. I don't know. I just that's what I, my takeaway from it. Oh, uh, the cop. A, a couple other. I want to talk about a couple of the other people from the cast, like like secondary characters. Sure. The cop that was investigating the two criminals that uh, that Batman took out at the beginning. The guy that like you find out later on, he's on the take. I think Eckhart is yeah. his name. Did you recognize him? Uh, no, I actually just looked him up this afternoon in mm-hmm. preparation for the show, and I was like, oh my god! And then I saw his other credits and went, wow. You know, considering he was in Star Wars and Indiana Jones, which were, you know, 10 and 8 years earlier, it's like, wow, he really let himself go. And hopefully it was just for this part and not because, you know, he was a big fat guy. <laughs> William Hoodkins, man. He was Porkins. He was Porkins, Porkins in Star, in Star Wars, Wars. And, and he was Major one of those two Eden. guys in Rangers. At the Rangers video, the, guy, the military guys at the beginning. Yeah. That yeah. They, they go to Indy and Brody at the university and they, they learn about the arc. Yeah. 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 I was I was shocked and when I, I again today I learned TIL today literally today I learned wow. that that's the guy. You were today years old when you learned that Porkins yep. was also in Raiders of Lost Ark and was Eckhart in this. Yeah, funny enough though he wasn't in Raiders of the Lost though. Uh, you and your I checked his IMDb page. Fair enough. Yeah. but there's um, in the comic books there's a character uh, a detective Harvey Bullock who very much is like this Eckhart character, at least physically. He's supposed to be this like really overweight, this guy who eats all the time and smokes Mm -hmm. and he's, he's gruff and he's, but in the comics, they sort of really uh, take it again. He's been in the, in the comics for 40 years. Sometimes he's sort of crooked and sometimes he's the, the, you know, the cop with the heart of gold, but tough as nails. And when they did um, the CW did a show called, uh, I think it was just called Gotham. And it was sort of like the, the story of the young commissioner Gordon, when he first joins the Gotham police department and his partner is is uh, Bullock, this this character who in that that one they played him as sort of just the the tough guy, but um, yeah. So this is another example where they they've sort of leaned on the comics a little bit to get some inspiration, and then they made changes for what they felt they needed to tell this story. So another another uh, actor I wanted to mention was Tracy Walter. So um, he was like the number one guy. You know, I met him once at a horror movie convention. I've mentioned before that I went to this convention back in like 1991, 1992. This guy has been a working actor for years and he was in Going South with Belushi. He was a Ferengi. Is that, I think that's how I pronounce it in the Star Trek The Next Generation because I never watched that show. I don't know. Sure. And but one show I did watch was WKRP in Cincinnati and he was in the contest that nobody could win. And so Johnny mixed up the, the notes and he announced this $5,000 giveaway. It was supposed to be 50 bucks. <laughs> and, oh, then, and both Tracy Walter and uh, Vincent Schiavelli won the contest. Totally random piece of trivia, but that's what we do here. There you go. Kim Basinger, I want to mention, she was a real thing for a while there. I mean, she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in uh, LA Confidential. Although I think, I think Gloria Stewart should have won for Titanic. Um, yeah, but you're crazy. Um, Kim Basinger was in nine and a half weeks and she was a Bond girl. She was a never seen ever again. And then there was all that Alec Baldwin tabloid crap that she went through. But what did you think of, of her being cast as Vicki Vale? She was fine. Um, I mean, again, the, the, this is a time when women's parts are not great. And it's a time where the people writing, directing, producing this movie 
are doing a movie that's male wish fulfillment. Hey, if you could be rich and good looking and be a superhero, wouldn't you want to do that? And don't you think you should have the prettiest girl? And so really, they don't really give her a lot to do. It's like, oh, she's the damsel in distress who constantly needs rescuing. Now they do give her the the um, the traits of like, she's a photojournalist and they, they try to explain that she's obviously a, like a, a photographer who took pictures of models who is trying to change her career path by going to a war zone and taking pictures of that. And then now she's like looking for the next something to try and separate herself from the pack and establish a name for herself. So, I mean, in that sense, the character was interesting, but they didn't really give her a lot to do. It was like, Oh, she's going to fall around. And then as soon as she meets, Oh, Hey, it's Bruce Wayne. He's rich. and good looking. Well, I'm going to go on a date with them and I'm going to sleep with them. And now we're boyfriend and girlfriend. And Oh my God, now I need rescuing by the Batman. And it's just like, it was a thing on. in comic books to have, uh, people named with the same letter in their first and last name, like Vicky Vale, oh, all the time. Lois Lane, Lana Lang, J. Jonah Jameson. Like that was a thing, right? Oh, there's hundreds of them. Yeah. Billy it helps you remember the character names. Yeah. I want to mention him. Sure. He'll always be Lando, you know, but, oh, but yeah. the thing was like, I remember him also for um, Lady Sings the Blues and Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone and Lindsay Wagner. And then he he did all these like Colt forty five. Colt forty five. Oh, that mole liquor. I remember for those commercials. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing those sweaters. So you mentioned this. Harvey Dent was the guy that becomes Two Face. Yes. Right. Well, yes. you know, because he wasn't half bad. You know. Um, another thing I wanted to mention here was Robin. So in the in the comic books, when does Robin come into the picture? Because obviously he was in the old TV show, Burt Ward played him, and he was in one of the sequels to this. I don't know, maybe the one with George Clooney and the Bat Nipples. Is that the one? Uh, he was in two of them. He was in uh, the one with um, Val Kilmer as Batman, and then he was in the one with George Clooney. I don't think any of the new iterations of this movie, like the Christian Bale ones, they don't have Robin, right? Well, they introduce a character in the third and final Christian Bale movie that could be the character that becomes Robin there. It's a little bit ambiguous. There's some name, some name play with what his name is versus anyway, but no, there's no one who actually, there's no actual like quote unquote superhero that, that is called Robin. But in the comic books, Batman came out, like I said before. So detective comics, number 27 is the first appearance of Batman. If you have a copy of that, it's worth over a million bucks. So good for you. (laughs) Um, And then that was issue 27 in issue 38, about a year later, they introduced Robin and one of the things that people may not realize is part of the reason you introduce a sidekick, especially in like a comic book, is it gives the characters a reason to talk about things that the audience needs to know that the characters themselves should already be fully aware of. And in the case of a protege or a younger person who is, you know, naive and inexperienced, Batman can then talk to Robin and explain what he's doing and why he's doing it. And there can be a conversation between two characters and it helps the audience follow the story better. And you see, and people probably don't realize this, but this happens in a lot of shows where the story follows, like a lot of the medical dramas are like that, where these are all students coming into the, the hospital for the first time. Well, you know why they always start with students? Because students don't know anything and everything has to be explained to them. At the same time, it's being explained to us, the audience. And it makes for you know, it makes the storytelling easier. And so that's a big part of why Robin was introduced. Another part of it was, you know, again, in the 1930s and 1940s, when these characters came out, you're trying to sell comic books to kids. Well, if you want to sell 
uh, if you want to sell someone, uh, you know, a story, have representation of them in that story. Well, you want 10 year old boys to buy your comic book? Look, Batman has a sidekick who's a 10 year old boy. That could be you. You could be Batman's partner. So it was a genius from a marketing point of view. I mean, it made no sense whatsoever that, uh, you know, first of all, that a grown man who dresses like a bat and fights crime at night would put a 10 year old boy in harm's way like that. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, yeah. So the Robin character has been around almost as long as Batman within a year of when Batman was first created. But no, he, he does not appear in, in this movie or the next one with Michael Keaton. So I mentioned before, I, I, I feel like this movie is a bit more style and less yes. substance, you know, and, and if yes. you really get into it, nothing really happens in this movie. You know, like from an action movie point of view, there's not a lot of big action scenes. That's what I felt. I mean, I like the sets. I like the cinematography. I like how the, I actually like how the, the city's kind of all black and gray. Even the costumes are all kind of drab, you know, except for the Joker. You know, he's like purple and green. Always purple. Makes yeah. him stand out, right? Yeah. Um, now, hang on. I want to, uh, so I'm glad you brought this up. I want to talk about the clothes and the costumes for a minute. Yeah. So one of the things that this movie did that, ha- that got replicated in some of the Batman um, storytelling was... It's supposed to take place in when this came out, 89. So the movie is supposed to take place in 1989. You see them, uh, you know, like the the way the, the they have television and they have technology that would definitely place this in 1989. But they very much lean on the tropes and the conventions of stories from like the 1920s and 30s and 40s in that all the villains, all of them are dressed in suits. Like all the goons are dressed in suits and ties like you would see back in those old gangster movies. And it's a deliberate stylistic choice not to have them in like, you know, skin tight turtlenecks with a, the ski mask and, or anything like that. Like and now in, in more modern comic books uh, or in more modern comic book related movies like the MCU and such, the villains always have practical outfits or clothing or, or uniforms. But this was a very deliberate choice to to have them in these kinds of costumes. And then later, towards the end of the movie, once uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker has sort of taken things over, um, the bad guys all have like matching Letterman jackets, which I thought was hilarious because you, you could just imagine one of them had to go and have these made because up until, you know, a month earlier, the Joker didn't exist. So it's not like these would have just been hanging around and they go, hey, we need a dozen of these. Like someone behind the scenes in the story had to go to a store and order 20 Joker jackets, which I think just when you think about it, it's kind of goofy and funny. Um, Same with the cars. He had those cars that were like painted purple and green with the Joker face on it. Like you had to bring those to a body shop and had those done. Like it just seems a little silly, but, but just this idea of the, of the, um, the sort of, mixing of modern technology and old time style. And like with the parade, he had the balloons and they're like these old timey balloons look like. And what ended up happening was about three or four years after this movie came out, I guess after the next one had come out, they Warner brothers launched what's called Batman, the animated series, Batman TAS. And it ran for five seasons and it's very sort of this dark gritty, modern retelling reimagining of the Batman in a cartoon animated form. And it was for like teenagers though. It wasn't for little kids and it aired like after school, after work kind of thing. Is that the one and with Mark Hamill as Joker? Mark Hamill did yeah. the voice of the Joker. Yes. And the stories are very, they're more, they're more mature stories. Like they're still suitable for kids, but not for really young kids. And the, the way the style of the cartoon was, is it's like you had villains in suits and you had blimps 
but at the same time you had cell phones and computers. So it was sort of this, they borrowed it from, from what was presented here in this movie where you can take those stylistic themes from the, the film noir and place them in a modern story and sort of have that, that mixture or that juxtaposition or that complementary um, pieces put together. And, and so that I actually, I, I did like about this, how it, it borrowed these old tropes, but it still just dumped them right into the modern setting. There was a little bit of black humor, I felt, in this one, too. Um, I thought especially when, when the Joker poisons all the cosmetics and the personal hygiene products, and then they show the TV news anchors, and they, they've got, like, no makeup. The yeah. hair is all frizzy and stuff. Like it, it almost was played for, like, kind of quiet laughs. I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. Okay, a couple things I want to mention. The Batmobile. Big departure from the Batmobile from the old TV show, you know, which is one of the more recognizable pieces of pop culture in the world. I think even non-comic book fans, they recognize that old Batmobile. Um, they obviously changed it up for this movie. They went with a more modern look, you know, more in line with that whole gothic kind of feel. Did, did you like it? No. I, I mean, I liked that it didn't look the same as the car from the 1960s show. Mm-hmm. I liked that it leaned more towards like a, a sleek military style vehicle. But mm-hmm. I think, it, I think again, I think it looked a little goofy. It seemed kind of impractical. It was this really long, skinny car. And I think that's more of like the Tim Burton influence. Like Tim Burton is a very visual storyteller. You look at his movies and he's got a lot of uh, strange visual imagery. And it wouldn't surprise me to to learn that he had a heavy hand in, in how this car looked. Like it had the whole thing where the armor went on. And like that to me, if you paint it, you know, white and red, it would totally look like a Tim Burton painting or, or sculpture. Um, I think it was needed to, you needed the Batmobile to definitely be a more updated, uh, more modern looking vehicle. I, I just, I think they missed the mark. And I think with the Christian Bale ones, they sort of did a better job of wrangling that back and, and describing it as like, this was this military vehicle used for these purposes and it needed to have armor because it was going into war zones. And, and just a couple lines of dialogue sort of give you that backstory. This one's just like, hey, he's got this car and it can drop bombs and take gunfire. And it's like, eh, it just looks silly. Well, for what it's worth, I've got two very young kids and they've both seen the old Batmobile and the new Batmobile, like at different car shows, you know, sure. and stuff like that. And you know, just they're like replicas or whatever they have. But my kids like the old one better. Like the one from the Adam West show? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, visually it's, it's got style. It's got, you know, it's a classic car. It's fun to look at. It's again, very impractical for the kind of Batman stories they're telling today, but necessary for the kind of Batman stories they were telling in the sixties. You know, even to the, even to the point where in the sixties show, he would always be like, make sure to put your seatbelt on Robin. Like, you know, it's always Mm -hmm. that positive reinforcement, positive messaging. So he had a bat plane too, which I actually thought was kind of cool. It reminded me of a, of a Cylon Raider. You know, yeah. I mean, it's shaped like the Batman logo, obviously, and but but the the, the shape is kind of the same as that you know the old Battlestar Galactica ships. So I don't know. Um, there's the scene when when Batman's flying the plane and then he comes up above the clouds and it stops in front of the moon for a second. A little bit forced, I guess. Yeah, but it's still kind yeah. of cool, you know. I guess in a way, like you know, the thing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another note I made watching this was was the idea of superhero identity. Okay, so, you know, keep in mind, I'm not a big comic book guy, you know, so you got to humor movie with these dumb questions, but, and I don't mean any offense by this, but what the hell is the deal with 
these superheroes secret identity in these friggin' things. I mean, Batman wears a mask, right? But it just covers the top of his face. You still see his eyes. You see the whole lower half of his face. How Vicky Vale doesn't know that Batman is Bruce Wayne is just dumb. I mean, I mean, come on, she just slept with the guy. You could totally tell it's Michael Keaton. It's like in Superman, he puts on a pair of glasses. He's Clark Kent. You know what I mean? Like, maybe this is why DC never broke into the into the comic book movies all that well. You know what I'm saying? Like, just I don't know. I know I know it's a plot device, but it just seems kind of contrived. Yeah, and I know uh, with the with things like um, with Batman in the. Again, I'm going to go to the Christian Bale movies because, again, they try to explain some of this. In the movies, when he's Batman, he talks with a really gruff voice to try and disguise his voice. And they even show in some sequences where he's got like a, a distortion thing on his on his throat to try and, you know, muffle the sound of his real voice. But, yeah, you're right. If, if you're going to still expose half your face, people are going to be able to just hold up a picture of a guy without a mask and a guy with the mask and 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 draw some pretty strong conclusions. And, again, part of the part of the Batman mythology is that. Uh, you know, most of the time he tries to avoid being photographed largely for that reason to keep his identity hidden. Um, and the idea obviously being that you're going to make a lot of enemies if you're a costume crime fighter and you don't want to put your loved ones at risk if, if people knew who you really were. Um, but again, it, it, like you said, it's just, it's a, it's a, a story trope from, from these kinds of stories. There are certain things you just have to accept. Like, Hey, Superman's an alien who's here on earth who can fly. And he looks just like us. Okay. I'm willing to accept that. Okay. Well then we're going to put it one step further. He puts on glasses, scooches over and hunches a little bit. And suddenly nobody knows he's Superman. It's like, okay, well I guess I can believe that too. And then you got to believe that Lois Lane's going to fall in love with him. It's like, whoa, whoa, that's just a bridge too far. Like, come on. Another question. Bats. They never really explain this but what is his obsession with bats like i i'm assuming it gets mentioned in the comics somewhere but I, it never really came up in the movie i don't think no they didn't make any efforts to address it in in this particular telling of the story um part of the reimagining or like part of the the like when you have spider-man there's the the famous saying of you know with great power comes great responsibility like that's right out of the spider-man mythology and anytime they retell the origin or anytime they do a new movie that line's in there because that's an important part of why spider-man does what he does and with batman sort of the line that comes from it is that um criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot that's i think Word for word, that's the line. At least that's the line Miller uses when he retells it in, in Batman Year One when he did that story mm-hmm. in the 80s. And the idea was that bats frightened Bruce Wayne when he was younger, and he felt that that he he would remember that fear that he had when the bats, you know, would swarm. And so that was why he adopted that persona of you know the giant sized bat because right. he felt it would it would instill fear in the people that he was trying to apprehend or stop from doing whatever it was they were doing and in in again in the christian bale movies they do talk about that a little bit but in these movies they don't address it at all they just again you accept it he's rich he's got money he's got a thing for bats let's do it (laughs) i want to talk a little bit about the score i i thought it was pretty good it it was Mm -hmm. danny elfman he's the guy that does the music for the for the The simpsons Simpsons. right from Um, boingo boingo he he's he's an uncle to jenna elfman you remember her yeah, from, she was uh, on Dharma and Greg. Greg. Yeah, yeah, and he's married to um, to Bridget Fonda. P. 
Peter Fonda's daughter. I have, by the way, I've had a lifelong crush on Brid- Bridget Fonda for what it's worth. But Danny Elfman, uh, he's a pretty good music composer. I thought the yeah. score was pretty good in this movie. Like it stood yeah. out to me. Between this, between his score and the soundtrack from Prince, this yeah. movie had a lot of strong musical, uh, um, you know, a lot of strong music behind it. And I mentioned earlier that a few years after this movie, they did the Batman animated series. Mm-hmm. All the music in the Batman animated series leans on and borrows from the stuff that Danny Elfman did. I don't know if he Smart personally move. did yeah. the music for the cartoon or if they just borrowed the music from the movie and then had, excuse me, had new composers do music in that same style. But that again, for fans that are fans of Batman that know the animated series, you cannot imagine any of the scenes from the animated series without instantly hearing the Danny Elfman score in your mind that originated with this film. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's very lasting. So then I guess the last thing I want to address in the million dollar question is, is how does this thing stand up, in your opinion, to these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? Like, I mean, it, it's not, you know, it's not a mile a minute action packed thriller like a lot of these movies are, right? But in, in, in some ways, that's kind of what I like about it. But uh, what's your take? Well, I mean, it's like comparing apples to oranges, right? You've you've got 20 years of, of movie history and 20 years of technological advancement between when this came out and when Iron Man came out. So it's it's really hard to compare the two. Um, but you know, if you're looking at it strictly from that lens, then this doesn't doesn't hold up very well at all. Other than to go right back to the point you made at the beginning of you can't get to where we are today without a few very important milestones to get there. And this definitely has a place as one of those milestones, but it's not fair to say, is this as good as that? Because they're, they're not in the same class. You, it's not a fair comparison. This, this doesn't have anywhere near the, the power of the new ones. So do you yeah. want to give it a rating out of 10? I think it's probably a seven or a seven and a half. I think I think my rating for it has probably gone down a little bit over the years. Again, as I just mentioned, because I'm comparing it to what I'm seeing today. You know, if you had asked me this in 1990, right after it came out, I would have probably given it a nine out of ten. But I think today I'm giving it maybe a seven, maybe a seven and a half on a good day. I think I am with you 100. percent I think earlier, like like around 89, 90, when this came out, I would probably rate it a lot higher, and it's gone down since then. I'd probably be about a seven and a half as well. I think that's a that's a pretty pretty good take on it. So. All around pretty good. All right, time now to have some fun with Caveman. All right, so it's my movie, so it's over to you for trivia. So what have you got lined up for me? I can just imagine. All right, well, we uh, we did Johnny Dangerously a while back, so I, I remember doing a whole bunch of Michael Keaton trivia, so I knew that we couldn't go down that road. Right. And uh, Jack Nicholson's career, you know, by the time he put out this movie, his, his most of his greater work was well behind him. So right. I think that asking a lot of questions about Jack Nicholson is going to be a mystery to a lot of our younger listeners who don't really know a lot about Jack Nicholson. So I, I try to think a little more outside of the box. And I know you're not familiar with the comic book movies, so couldn't no. really go down that road either. So I started thinking about superhero movies. As you had mentioned not too, not too long ago, superheroes generally have a secret identity. Yes. They have their real name and their superhero name. Sure. And a lot of actors are like that. They have their real name. And they have their actor name. Right. And some of them have changed their names for very different reasons. So I'm going to give you the name of 10 performers who have changed their name. And the name you would know is their new famous stage name. Okay. But in all cases, 
they all had different names before they became performers. Yeah, it's, it's pretty common, isn't it? It, it? Yeah, more than you think. And so I'll, what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll start by giving you the person's real name and I'll give you a guess. And if you don't know who it is, then I'll give you a clue. So you basically have two tries at all. And some of these right. are kind of easy. You should probably get right from the name. Other ones, you know, there's a couple on here that that are going to be really tough. You may not get them yet, but we'll get there. So anyway, there's 10. We'll see how how well you do. OK, you ready? Mm hmm. All about secret identities. Okay, first first performer. It's a woman. Her name is her real name is Margaret Mary Emily Ann Hira. Any guesses? No, no, didn't think so. Sorry, this uh, this is a really hard one to start with. Okay, this actress who made a name for herself as the queen of romantic comedies in the eighties and nineties changed her name while registering for the Screen Actors Guild. The new name she chose included her maternal grandmother's maiden name. Her real name again was Margaret Mary Emily Ann Hira. No idea. Meg Ryan. So she oh, kept the wow. Margaret, went down to Meg, and Ryan was her grandmother's maiden name. Oh, well, I figure since we just did when Harry met Sally, you might get that. So. Oh yes, of course. Okay, this this is a nice easy one. I knew that one was really hard. I need to give you a nice easy one for a second one. Okay, this actor's real name is Carlos Irwin Estevez. Is it Charlie Sheen? Yes, it is yes. Charlie Sheen. Yes. I knew, yeah, I knew that because yeah. it was. Yeah, his, his father parents. obviously being Martin Sheen. Yeah. And Martin Sheen's real name is Ramon Estevez. Yes. So, and his go. other son took his name. Yeah. Yes. All right. Third one on the list. Another male performer. His real name is Eric Marlin Bishop. No idea. Okay. Uh, when this Oscar-winning actor and musician was starting out as a stand-up comedian, he chose a gender-neutral name because female comics were called first to perform during open mic night. No idea. I'll give you a second hint for this. His surname was reportedly chosen as a tribute to a comedian who had been very famous years before. Jamie Foxx? Jamie Foxx? Total guess. Nice. <laughs> you're putting it together. I'm like, maybe. Oh, that's cool. there you so, go. Yeah. Oh, nice All right. Yeah, this one's an, I think this one's another pretty straightforward one. Okay. Real name, David Robert Hayward Jones. David Robert Hayward Jones. Uh, I don't know. So this musician and actor was encouraged to change his name when starting out to avoid confusion with another musician popular at the time who had a similar sounding name. No, I don't know. His real name again, David Robert Howard Jones. Is it Howard Jones? Nope. It's David Bowie. Oh, because oh. David Jones was shortened to Davy Jones. Jones. And oh, it was, although okay, spelled differently, was the same as the Davy Jones from the monkeys. And they're like, you can't have right. two Davy Joneses. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, this one might be tough. Natalie Hirschlag. Natalie Hirschlag. No idea. This Oscar winning actress used her grandmother's maiden name to separate her public and private life when she started her acting career as a young teenager. I don't know. You have seen her first performance. We did it on the show. Her first performance? I have no idea. Natalie Hirschlag. Her real name, Natalie Portman. Oh, okay. 
All right, this one, uh, I'll give you a hint. This, you really need to sound this one out. Okay, real name. Mm-hmm. Ilyena Lydia Miranov. Ilyana? Lydia Miranov. Lydia Miranov. Okay. This actress was born in London, but her parents were Russian aristocracy. So when she was nine, her father changed their Russian name to something that sounded more English. Miranov. Ilyana Miranov. Helen Mirren? There you go. Nice. (laughs) Thanks for the clues. No problem. All right. This one, I don't know if you'll know this one or not. Okay. Real name, Krishna Bahani. Krishna Bahani. I don't know. This actor changed his name because he feared that having an Asian name would hinder his acting career. And maybe he was right. He's been nominated for four Oscars and won once. And he's Oriental? He's of Asian descent. I don't know. Ben Kingsley. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that he had changed his name. But Yeah, go figure. All right. Maurice Joseph Micklewhite. Is it uh, Michael Caine? It is Michael Caine. Nice. Nice. All right. Two what I think are pretty easy ones coming down the pipe here. Okay. Mark Sinclair Vincent. Mark Sinclair Vincent. I don't know. Is it from like my generation? Uh, no, a little newer. Well, then I'm not. You'll get know. it from the clue for sure. Yeah. This, give me a clue. Ener- this energetic actor changed his name while working as a bouncer at a New York nightclub because he wanted a name that sounded tougher and more intimidating. Mark Sinclair Vincent. Vin Diesel? Yes! <laughs> Nicely done! <laughs> Wow. <laughs> nice. All okay. right, go figure. Last one, last wow. one. Oh, my God. Karen Elaine Johnson. Karen Elaine Johnson. I don't know. Who's that? So you'll get this from the clue, I guarantee it. All right. This Oscar-winning actress's stage name was inspired by her co-workers who joked that she passed gas frequently and by her mother, who advised her that she would be better received in Hollywood if she went by a Jewish name. Oh, God, I don't know. No idea. Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, jeez. Of course. You get that one for no. sure. No, no, these were tough. You got you got some that I didn't expect you to get, yeah, but you missed a few I thought you'd get. That's, that's why I have secret identities, right? So people don't yeah. know who you really are. Yeah, so, and I actually... Uh, so this is lesson learned. You can't believe everything you read on the internet because I did a bunch of searches. No, no. I did a bunch of searches for performers who have changed their name and I had a long list. And as I started to dig deeper and double check the facts, as you should always do when you look stuff up on the internet, yeah, there was idea. a lot where when I looked it up, it said, oh yeah, no, this person's real name is blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, the internet is constantly reporting that their r- original birth name was something else and it's not. So I had at least four people on my list originally that I had to cross off once I double checked the facts. So lesson learned, always double check your work when you're using the internet as a source. Good idea. I'll I'll tell you what, so next week, we actually have a few special guests joining us, Derek. So Lisa and Jason Marks from the Designated Quizzers podcast are gonna join us and we're gonna talk about fashion and pop culture. 
I have a feeling I might be stuck on 80s fashion. I don't know. It should be an interesting topic. So I well, Chris, to- I, I, I've seen the kind of things you wear. I think you're going to uh, either struggle tremendously or learn a lot or, or both. I, th- I think struggle tremendously is a probably a pretty good take on it. So, so we'll have to see. But I mean, fashion has been a part of pop culture. Absolutely. You know, over, over, over time. So it'll be an interesting uh, thing for us to take a look at. I think it'll be an interesting topic and to have them join us because they're, they're really good. So uh, until then, I'll tell you what, come back next week. We're going to talk about fashion and pop culture. In the meantime, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Myers and our producer Schloss saying thanks for listening to Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.